If you have your Bibles, turn, if you would, to Deuteronomy chapter 26. And, in addition to that, if you would turn to Genesis chapter 22. And we'll come to that in a few minutes. Deuteronomy 26. Our text, by the way, comes from our reading this coming Thursday, uh, March the 1st, beginning in verse number 5 of Deuteronomy 26. Then you shall declare before the Lord your God, My father was a wandering Aramean, and he went down into Egypt with a few people, and lived there and became a great nation, powerful and numerous. But the Egyptians mistreated us and made us suffer, putting us to hard labor. Then we cried out to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our misery, toil, and oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great terror and with miraculous signs and wonders. He brought us to this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now I bring the first fruits of the soil that you, O Lord, have given us. We have been, as a congregation... Uh, seeking to read through the Bible this year together. We started in Genesis, and now we are in Deuteronomy. The question may have come up, why are we reading the Old Testament? And it's something I've tried to deal with the past four Sundays. This is the fifth Sunday in this series. Among the things that we've seen is that the sacrificial system described in Exodus and Leviticus points ahead to the sacrificial death of Jesus in his crucifixion. Paul told the Corinthians, who were embarrassed by the whole business of their God being crucified, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. But what exactly does this mean? I think if you were to ask people today who call themselves Christians, what happened when Jesus died, when he was crucified? You'd probably get various answers. Uh, Jesus died for my sins. Jesus died to show us how much God loves us. Jesus took my place on the cross. All of these statements are true, by the way. But if you were to press people for more details about this, I think they would be hard-pressed to say more. I think we would all agree, I think everyone would agree, that the cross is a symbol, if not the symbol, of the Christian faith. But what it represents and what it symbolizes oftentimes is open to various interpretations and perhaps even some confusion. I think the problem is twofold. First is that the cross is seen as a one-dimensional issue. It's seen as one thing, that it represents this one thing. Um, there's only one interpretation. And as we will see, the cross is in fact multidimensional, um, and we lose something when we lose sight of that. Secondly, I think we lose sight of that because the cross is not seen in the light of the Old Testament. Usually because people haven't read the Old Testament. Often because they don't want to. They think it has little or nothing to do with being a Christian. We are New Testament people, so let's read the New Testament and forget the Old Testament. I would remind you of something I I read a couple Sundays ago. That the, their only source for discovering the meaning of the strange death of their Lord was the scriptures that they had always known. These are the early Christians. Imagine the attention with which early Christian leaders searched every syllable of the Hebrew Bible, seeking to understand how the terrible death of the Son of God had been in the mind and plan of God all along. It must have been a very exciting process. 
Anyone reading Leviticus and thinking of Jesus at the same time could hardly fail to notice a phrase like a male lamb without blemish in the list of stipulations. This is the sort of detail that would jump off the page of the Hebrew scriptures in those first years after the resurrection. But we need to be clear about something. The Old Testament isn't simply additional information to the New Testament. Sort of a backstory, you know, an interesting sideshow to what the good stuff that happens in the New Testament. We cannot have a New Testament if we don't have an Old Testament. Okay? The New Testament is impossible, it is unimaginable, if we don't have the First Testament, if we don't have the Old Testament. Now, there is this continuity. Things do change in the New Testament. It isn't necessarily a sort of a smooth transition. Things uh, do change. But if we are to understand anything about the cross, or anything about Jesus as the Son of God in his fullness, we better know the Old Testament. We need to know the Old Testament. When we come to the New Testament, by the way, and I think a lot of people miss this, what we find among the followers of Jesus is that they had a thorough understanding and knowledge of the Old Testament. I don't know about understanding, I'll take that back, but a knowledge of the Old Testament, particularly the Law and the Prophets. And they were committed to them as Scripture. That it, This is authoritative. What we call the Old Testament, they would say, this is Scripture and this has authority from God. So, when they would read the Old Testament and they would read about Israel, we would see that at least in Exodus, their predicament is twofold. First of all, they needed to be delivered out of slavery because they were slaves to the Egyptians. And then secondly, they were guilty. They had sin. They were sinners. By the way, the same two things are true of every human being in the human race, that we are, without God's grace, captive to sin, and we are guilty as sinners. And God delivered them. By a mighty hand, as we read in our text, an outstretched arm, he delivered them. In the book of Exodus, we read about how God delivered Israel out of captivity, out of slavery. The story is being repeated today. When someone goes from death to life, when a person who is an unbeliever puts their faith in Christ and becomes a child of God, they have in essence left Egypt and they are on their way to the promised land. In the book of Leviticus, as well as parts of Exodus, we see how God called Israel to deal with their guilt. Even though they had been delivered, there's still a problem. That is, they would not do the things they should and they would do things they should not do. But all of these sacrifices that they were to perform pointed ahead to the Lord Jesus that we find in the New Testament. And what I want to do today, and what I think will be the last sermon in this series, is to look at several aspects of the Old Testament and see how they point to Jesus and his death so that we see it not as one-dimensional, that Jesus died for my sins, or they chose God's love for me, or he died as my substitute, but it's multidimensional, that so many things are going on in the death of Christ that we need to understand. The first that I would mention is the Passover. In Exodus chapter 2, we read this. 
During that long period, Israel had been there for four centuries, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. We saw this in the series on memory, on remembering, that God's memory is quite different from ours. That when we read of God remembering, it isn't like us, like, oh yeah, I had forgotten that and and now I remember. Um, God's memory, God remembers us as we are, not as we imagine ourselves to be. David said at the beginning of Psalm 139, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. God does, in fact, know everything about us. And his memory, as I said, is not the same as ours. See, in our thinking, well, in our existence, we have past, present, and future. These are not concepts we can apply to God. God is eternal. God is outside of time. So we remember the past. We have wishes for the future. We exist right now in the present. But God, for everything, is present. So there's no past to recall. God's memory has to do with the fact of he he acts toward people, he sustains them. To be remembered by God is to be sustained by God. And to be remembered by God is to be the recipient of divine action. God acts on our behalf. Simply put, when we see that God remembers, it is saying that God acts. So to be remembered is to be is, first of all, to exist, but to be sustained by God. Passover is also a time of remembering. But this time the remembering is on the part of God's people. God acts toward his people, he remembers them, but they are to remember as well. It is the night in which the angel of death passed over Egypt, and all the firstborn of Egypt were killed. And the Israelites left Egypt in the Exodus. It was something they were to remember. And indeed, to this day, the Jews uh, celebrate, commemorate Passover. In Exodus 12, this is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. And... What, what was Passover? What was the, well, we know the angel passed over, but what were the Israelites supposed to do? Well, first of all, they were to take a year-old male lamb. It was to be slaughtered at twilight on the 14th day of the first month. They were to take some of the blood and they were to put it on the top and on the side post of the door. They were to roast the lamb and they were to eat it along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. It is this last part that we find in the Lord's Supper, which was, in fact, the Passover meal. And we are told, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We are to remember. This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. We are to remember. But there's an earlier mention of uh, the Lord's Supper, actually Passover, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, actually chapter 5, there's a serious problem in the Corinthian church. And it's, it's even made more serious because they don't see it as a problem. There is a member of their congregation who is sleeping with his mother, with his stepmother. It's incest. 
And as Paul says, you know, even Gentiles, as wicked as they are, they don't do something like this. And so Paul is instructing them that this man needs to be put out. But right in the middle of chapter 5, he says you need to get rid of the yeast. Yeast is a type of sin. And then he says, get rid of the old yeast that you may have a new batch without yeast as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So Paul makes a connection there from Passover, the Passover meal, the lamb and the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the lamb that is slain. From the earliest times in the church, in 1 Corinthians, it's one of the first, I think after 1 Thessalonians, uh, first epistles that was written, Jesus' death was seen as the new Passover. This is how people understood it. That you have the Passover in the Old Testament, and now we have a new Passover, and that Jesus has been put to death. And when he was raised from the dead, that's Exodus, leaving the tomb. So this is how they understood because all they had was the Old Testament. They're not like, oh, we're New Testament people. We're just going to read the New Testament. It hadn't been written yet. So they understood the Lord Jesus in the light of the Old Testament. The rescue from death, the deliverance from slavery. Yeah, slavery is a metaphor for sin. Those who are in bondage need to be set free. Those who are enslaved by sin which includes, by the way, not only individual sin, but systemic evil that we find in society around us, they need to be delivered. We find, interestingly enough, in Christian communities, sadly not in the ones I think that we are familiar with, that the Exodus is part of the liturgy of Holy Week. That is to say, as churches celebrate between Palm Sunday and Easter, but particularly on Good Friday, they read various passages from Scripture. And they sing hymns. And the hymns, interestingly enough, come from Old Testament images. A sin offering, the payment of debt, the blood sacrifice, and more. Listen, I'll read to you one of the hymns. It is truly right and good, always and everywhere, with our whole heart and mind and voice, to praise you, the invisible, almighty, and eternal God, and your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. He is the true Pascal, that is, uh, Passover lamb, who at the feast of the Passover paid for us the debt of Adam's sin and by his blood delivered your faithful people. So there is forgiveness of sin, but deliverance as well. This is the night when you brought our fathers, the children of Israel, out of e bondage in Egypt and led them through the Red Sea on dry land. This is the night when all who believe in Christ are delivered from the gloom of sin and are restored to grace and holiness of life. This is the night when Christ broke the bonds of death and hell and rose victorious from the grave. So the early church said, Passover, this is the night when Christ did these things for us. The early Christians saw the Exodus as the event par excellence that in fact revealed the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In their worship, you didn't have to explain, oh, by the way, Passover and the unleavened bread and all that, that's pointing ahead to Jesus. They understood that. They understood without being told that through death into life, we have the significance of bondage to freedom that God has given his people. Even in this single story, the story of the Passover, 
we find different layers. It's multidimensional. It isn't just the lamb and Jesus, but the unleavened bread. We have the blood that's put on the doorpost. These show so many things for us of the death of Christ and the sacrifice of Christ. So we have Passover. The second one that I want to look at is found in Genesis chapter 22. Genesis 22. And while this may be a familiar story, I I do want to read it. I think it is uh, important for what we need to see. By the way, in various church traditions, this is a passage that is to be read on Good Friday. See, I think if I, if I were to say to you, okay, uh, this Good Friday we are going to commemorate the death of Jesus, what should we read? I think we would all pick passages from the New Testament. But we find in various church traditions, no, they read from the Old Testament, and this is one that they read. Beginning at verse 1, Sometime later God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Early in the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went up together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns, and he went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide, and to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. In the church tradition, this passage is seen as the link between the Old Testament and the death of Jesus in the New Testament. Just a side note, it is worth noting that this is the last conversation, the last time that God speaks to Abraham, that is recorded. It is also the only conversation recorded between Isaac and Abraham. The only obviously they did speak, this is the only time that their conversation is recorded. Now if we would be honest, as amazing as this story is, it raises... I think a lot of questions, particularly about the character and the nature of God. Why would God tell Abraham to sacrifice his son as a burnt offering? I will not pretend to fully understand this story. 
But if we hold that there is a connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and we see the Old Testament as pointing to Jesus, well, we might see a connection that Paul did in Romans chapter 8. What then shall we say in response to this, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? This is why this has been chosen for the Good Friday reading. As Abraham was willing to give up his son, in the end did not have to, God did give up his son. But there's more to the story. I think usually when we hear the story, we think of the ram that's caught in the bush behind Abraham and he sees it, and there's a substitute. Instead of offering Isaac as a burnt offering, he offers the ram as a burnt offering. But I think there's even more to it than that. How is Isaac described by God in the story? Did you notice that? Back in verse number two, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. And then in verse 12, you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Does this remind you of anything in the New Testament? When Jesus was baptized, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. In John 3.16 we hear that Jesus is God's only begotten Son. So in this story, both Isaac and the ram that died in his place point to Jesus. The beloved Son who was to be sacrificed and the ram who was the substitute sacrifice. But there's even more. I'll just mention one more thing. Abraham was the unparalleled example of trust and faith in what frankly are unimaginable circumstances. But notice this. We have the Old Testament. This is a one-time event. God never asked this of anybody else. This was not to be repeated until we come to the New Testament and we have the death of Jesus on the cross. Some people struggle with the crucifixion, the idea of Jesus being put to death. And I think, I think they, they fail to see that there's a significant difference between these two stories, between Abraham and Isaac and what we see in the New Testament. On the cross, God the Father did not sacrifice his son. God the Father and God the Son, together with a single will. This is not the Father forcing the Son to do this. Both the Son and the Father together enact God's purposes. This is not Abraham offering Isaac. There the story doesn't work. There's a discontinuity. What we find in the crucifixion is God the Father and God the Son acting in concert together that results in the sacrifice of Jesus. The third and final thing I'd like to look at from the Old Testament and how it points to Jesus is the idea of redemption. And you might put in parenthesis, ransom. The idea of redemption, I think, is a familiar one, even to those who have little or no religious background. Uh, as is, I think, also with ransom. Um, 
In the story of Israel, we find that they are enslaved, they are captives, they need to be delivered. And redeem and redeemer are words that we hear through the rest of the Old Testament talking about that event. Psalm 19:14. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Job 19, I know that my redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. In Psalm 31, which looks ahead to the death of Jesus, we hear him Into your hands I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, the God of truth. So I think redemption, being redeemed, being ransomed, I think for many people, yeah, it's not a problem. They get that. I think where they have trouble is with the idea of cost or price. It's the same thing with the issue of blood. So people would say, redemption is okay, um, but not the price. You know, To somehow say that the death of Jesus pays for, it is the price of our redemption, I think is offensive to many people. Flannery O'Connor, in one of her essays, uh, The Grotesque in Southern Fiction, wrote that the reader of today is indeed looking for redemption. She writes this, But what he has forgotten is the cost of it. His sense of evil is diluted or lacking altogether, and so he has forgotten the price of restoration. Yes, human beings want to hear about redemption. Not so much the price or the cost of redemption. Another writer put it this way, the human predicament is so dire that it cannot be remedied in any ordinary way. By the way, if we don't see that, then we're in serious trouble. If we fail to see this, then we have not yet considered the great weight of sin. Redemption, buying back, therefore is not cheap. In the death of Jesus, we see God himself suffering the consequences of sin. That is the price. When Christian teaching falls short of this proclamation, the work of Christ on the cross is diminished to the vanishing point of becoming nothing more than an exemplary death to admire, to venerate, perhaps even emulate. But certainly not an event to shake the foundations of this world order. See, if we don't see sin as being serious, a serious issue, then the idea of a price having to be paid for it I think we lose sight of. We need to understand that redemption is deliverance at cost. Redemption isn't simply being delivered. It is being delivered at cost. It is deliverance by purchase. Jesus spoke about this in his ministry. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Peter writes in 1 Peter, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed, bought back, from your empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. What we hear in these passages is the cost, the price of redemption. It's not just deliverance. It's not just any deliverance. It's deliverance at cost. It costs something. We hear this from Paul in 1 Corinthians. Paul 
deals with the cross because these people are really embarrassed by it. Um, in chapter 6, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. And then in chapter 7, verse 23, You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of sin. At the beginning of this series, one of the, we saw the following in Exodus and Leviticus, that it is the Lord who, in fact, determined how the Israelites were to worship him. It's not a question of sacrifice versus no sacrifice. We all sacrifice to the God that we worship. And I think if we look at our sacrifice, it would give us a strong clue as to who it is that we worship. Thirdly, worship is costly. Fourthly, Sin is significant and costly as well. And lastly, it all points to Jesus and his sacrifice. And we should see in this that redemption costs something. It costs the death, costs the life of the Lord Jesus. In the New Testament, we read the good news of redemption. It is in and by the Lord Jesus. We have two major themes that keep coming up. Redemption continues to mean that we are delivered by God's power. And redemption continues to bear its message of a price has been paid. A price has been paid. So God delivers us. That part I think we like. A price had to be paid. It's not that we dislike it, but we somehow want to sort of push it away. We can only do that, by the way, if we don't know the Old Testament, if we haven't read the Old Testament. If we haven't, then we lose sight of it. It's as Jesus told the two on the road to Emmaus. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses, we'd say Exodus and Leviticus, And all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. How foolish we are if we do not take into account what is written in the Old Testament. If we do not read the Old Testament and see, this is all pointing ahead to what Jesus would do. Not as a one-dimensional act of dying on a cross, but as something that has so many layers to it. That it takes the whole Old Testament to prepare us for this event of Jesus being crucified. I mentioned last Sunday, we tend to forget that what we call the Old Testament was the only Bible that Jesus, Paul, and the earliest Christians had. Not only so, but the Torah and the prophets, that is, the first five books and the prophets, and the Psalms were known to them by heart in a fashion that today we can hardly imagine. There are many things that we do not know about Jesus, but of this we can be sure His mind and heart were shaped by intimate, continuous interaction with the scriptures. If we are to have the mind of Christ, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2, we need to know the Old Testament. As we as a congregation continue to read through the Old Testament and then into the New Testament, we should keep these things in mind. We've already read about the Passover and the Exodus. And by the way, in Deuteronomy Moses is reminding a new generation that has come up as they get ready to go across the Jordan River. These are the things that happened in the past. 
We have read about that sacrifice or the binding of Isaac. And we have read passages that sometimes might even bore us, dare I say that, of the sacrifices that were to be done and the cost. An animal without blemish. By the way, I don't know if you noticed this in the reading, but the sacrifices for sin were for sins that people committed unwittingly. In Numbers it tells us, if you deliberately commit a sin, there is no sacrifice. Well, that's a little scary, isn't it? The cost of sacrifice. All of these things point ahead to the Lord Jesus. Something that is not one-dimensional. It is as though in the cross of Christ we find suddenly the Old Testament makes sense. It, it opens up, it's fleshed. This is what it's all about. And as we continue to read, uh, this week and then next week we will finish uh, Deuteronomy and then we will get into the historical books. But even there we will see things that point ahead to the Lord Jesus. The one who delivered his people, who forgives our sins, and who paid the price. Yes, Jesus did die for us. He died to show us God's love. He died in our place. But the death of Christ is so much more than that. And without the Old Testament, I don't think we see this. I don't think we see this. Let's pray together. Our Father, it is amazing that you have revealed yourself in Scripture. And yet, for a variety of reasons, we tend to only focus on one part. So many would only read the New Testament. And even among those, some would only read the Gospels. But you've given us your whole word from Genesis to Revelation. And it all points to the Lord Jesus. In reading it, may we have a deeper appreciation for what he has done. Not simply see it, not even see it as a martyr's death or the death of a victim of circumstances. Somehow the Romans and the religious leaders among the Jews uh, were able to get rid of him. This is your sacrifice, his sacrifice. A price was paid. May we be like Abraham and trust you. That you know what is best. And may we remember that Christ is our Passover lamb. That for all our sins have been forgiven. Your wrath will pass over us. I thank you for bringing us together today. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. May we have a sense of your presence as we walk through the world in this coming week. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.